this is Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and I'm filling in for David Moses. Well, today we're going to explore a loaded question. What is the future of work? What will the impact be of artificial intelligence, the automation of jobs, and will there be enough work left? And with changing models for work and work structures, such as independent work, outsource services, remote workers, the gig economy, what will work look like in the future? Well, my guest today has all the answers. Caitlin McGregor is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Plum, a startup in Waterloo that has developed predictive hiring technology. Welcome, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me today. Tell us a little bit more about Plum, and that just sounds like such a an interesting concept, predictive hiring technology. So um, the story behind Plum is that I had built two businesses for other people, and when I went to build the second business, I worked with a very expensive consultant and had access to psychometric data. So the ability to measure somebody's cognitive ability, like problem solving, and their personality priorities. I was able to basically quantify somebody's potential. Uh, as an employer looking at lots of job applicants, I consistently saw that this data could identify diamonds in the rough and reveal people that had enormous potential that never would have shone through on a resume. And so after paying and working with that consultant for two and a half years and growing the business, uh, my co-founder and I saw an opportunity to democratize access to this highly, highly predictive data and make it so that talent decisions were based on the psychometric data of people, their transferable talents like innovation and adaptation and communication, and that that information, which is four times more accurate than a resume, was used to make decisions. So we built a software company. It's a software as a service platform that allows employers to have this data on their existing employees and job seekers, and it allows uh, job seekers to take their own Plum profile and use their talents to promote themselves to employers and to really differentiate for what makes them unique. Would this mean then that instead of going in for an interview in person, artificial intelligence then measures the candidate? It doesn't replace the interview stage. Uh, what it does is allows us to focus on data that's going to help the hiring managers make better decisions. So if you're looking at, let's say, 100 people that have all graduated with computer science degrees in the last two years, and they have different co-op experience, on paper, they all look the same. They do. And the, those requirements don't actually make them better than somebody that you know, potentially had a job that was a little bit less relevant, and maybe they went through a boot camp to be coders instead of doing a computer science degree. So even on its own, it's not a good predictor. It's not a good predictor amongst other people that look the same. The best predictors are things like, do you need somebody that's innovative? Do you need somebody who's going to come in and figure it out and, and problem solve? Do you need somebody that's going to work well on a team so that collectively they're solving things? If you have somebody who's really great technically, but they can't communicate to their team members, and that's a critical requirement, there doesn't matter how much experience they ha have, they're not going to be a top performer. So it's not replacing the interview, but helping you focus on the people that statistically have the greatest likelihood. And what's exciting is that while we started trying to help with hiring, where we found the biggest need in the market is really in talent management. Uh, SAP is a customer of ours, one of the largest software businesses in the world. 
And while it's great to help them identify the 20% of new people that join their organization a year, their biggest pain point is their 100,000 employees and what's going to happen to them over the next five years as the future of work completely disrupts the job requirements that they have, automate certain roles, and brand new roles that don't even exist yet. Don't even exist today. Get created. Right? New, jo- new jobs we've never heard of before. Mm-hmm. And I really like what you say about how it can be tough to identify those complementary traits. We have the fundamental traits. Yes, I can do the job. Yes, I can speak into a microphone. But is the person the right fit in terms of the culture of the company? Or do they have a certain trait that they might not even know they're looking for. I love that you say that because I teach in a university as well as work here. And I'm always telling the students, hey, you know, if if three people come in and they have the same resume and you're all graduating out of Schulich, they have to find something unique. You have to stand out in some way or another. So I guess what I'm hearing here is that AI can now take have a, a role in some of this. Yeah, so AI is really interesting because there's lots of different roles that it plays. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. And so really to understand the future of work, uh, take a, we need to take a step back. So some of the statistics are that half of today's jobs are going to be displaced by automation in the next you know, six to 15 years. And so that means that a job that we would be applying to today you may be working in that job for the next three years, but then all of a sudden tomorrow, that job doesn't exist. And so we have a client. I think we all feel that way. Yeah. There's a lot of fear out there. But but it's happening already. So um, we're talking to a large insurance company in the U.S., and they're saying that every six months right now, the nature of the jobs, the behavioral requirements for the jobs are changing. So we, on a business level, um, when you when you get in working with companies, there's a, a an acronym called KPIs, Key Performance Indicators. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's what are the goals for your role? What, so your job at the end of the year, what are the main priorities that you've accomplished? And so KPIs just set up what those main priorities are. What we're seeing is evolution to KBIs, Key Behavioral Indicators. So what are the behaviors you need to see from an individual in order for them to succeed in that role? At this insurance company, they're seeing that the behaviors in order to be successful are changing as rapidly as every six months because they'll bring in a new leader that's trying to come up with a new way of being competitive, a new way of differentiating their organization. So if you think about sales, we are used to seeing people that use a sales methodology called challenger sales methodology. And so it's you're really trying to challenge people's assumptions. It really requires you to be almost uh, assertive and, and very persuasive and kind of in their face. But a lot of companies, for instance, as a way of trying to stay, stay up to date and compete with the likes of Uber and Netflix and other companies, they're saying, okay, we need to be more customer centric. So they're using a method called solution selling. Well, solution selling is making the customer be part of it. It's very much about involving them and being collaborative and and finding the solution together. And it's not not very aggressive at all. And, And it's more about putting the person in the seat of success. And so the behaviors needed to be a successful solution selling rep are totally different than if you were doing challenger sales. And so if you have a new direction in the organization, that trickles down into changing the behaviors. And so AI is simply saying that the way we have been doing things in the past in order to stay relevant, to have an agile workforce 
that can adapt to these constant needs, we need to start um, matching people to ever-evolving roles in a way that we didn't have to before. I think that we got lazy with looking at resume data. You know, if you were a business development representative, well, then I have a high degree of confidence that you can be an account executive. And if you were account executive in sales, well, why don't you go and manage a whole bunch of salespeople? Totally different requirements. But, but it was easy when the job was always the same, where somebody could do the same job for 10 years. One of the most interesting statistics that I heard recently is that if somebody is 70 years old today, most likely they were able to retire at 61 and they were working for about 40 years. A 10-year-old today will most likely have to work until they're 80. 80. And wow. they will be working for 60 years. So if you think about a career that lasts 60 years and an organization whose roles are changing all the time because self-driving cars now mean that people are getting into less accidents, so you don't need as many claims rep roles. Right. You are doing more online banking and more investing on your own, so you don't need as many you know, investment managers at the bank. You don't need as many tellers. If automation is changing the nature of work and it's constantly evolving, people in preschool, kids in preschool will be applying to 95% of the jobs that preschoolers will be applying to when they hit the workforce will be brand new jobs that don't even exist yet. So how do we possibly go to school or rely on past work experience as a way of evaluating talent? It just will not work. And it's already happening at the enterprise level today. This is already a big concern right now. Well, what are some examples then of what you're plugging into the AI that will help keep up with all of this? So AI, um, the first part is how, how did it, is it disrupting the workforce? The second part is how do we leverage AI to help us find the solution to this? So we're seeing two different applications of AI. One I would say is the road that I don't think we should be heading down and need to be aware of. And then the other direction is the direction that Plum's gone, which I think is is where the future really lies. And so what happens is AI is primarily looking at data that has been collected. So data that is able, that already exists, that they can go out and collect. Um, It's been cleaned so that the, the data is relevant. And then it runs an analysis on that data, looking for patterns, looking for repetition of if this is constantly, you know, if if this person, um, this behavior, this action creates this outcome, how do we predict that that's going to happen again? So it's it's really just about pattern recognition, but it's based on the data it can analyze. And so what's happened with a lot of AI solutions is it's looking at the keywords that are ex- in a resume. Uh, it's looking at where you previously went to school, where you previously worked, and it is simply replicating that pattern recognition. It's not saying a lot, really. Right. And so what the thing is, is that there are um, there are 6,000 industrial organizational psychologists that every year get together at an annual conference. And last year, the big topic was AI. And they had an employment lawyer come on stage and talk about one of their clients that was using one of these AI technology solutions that was looking at resume information, performance information, and social media data. And looking for what was common with the top performers in the organization and how could they find more people like that. And the company uh, was really excited. They used it for three months. But then for legal purposes, 
you can only judge somebody based on whether or not that information is job relevant. So for example, if you find out from social media that this person has a cat and you know, you don't want to hire people with cats, like that would be discriminatory. You're you're not allowed. Sure. It's not job relevant. It doesn't have an impact as to whether or not you can do your job. So they had to open up the black box because um, a lot of the times with AI, um, it's not told why it's making one prediction over another. But in this case, they opened it up and figured out that the top performers it was recommending based on this pattern recognition, they were more likely to be told that they should be hired if their name was Jared, if they had played lacrosse, and if they had read Harry Potter. Oh, my goodness. None of which is job relevant. None. So that's the that's the bad thing with AI is we don't want to use AI to reinforce existing biases that have been put in place because we've been using bad quality data. It's as simple as garbage in data, garbage out. And so what Plum is doing is saying, where is good quality data and how do we use AI to automate and scale that good quality data? So I'll pause there because I've been going on and on. <laughs> no, there's a lot. This is loaded. I'm I'm still back at when you said that someone who's 10 will have to work until they're 80. I'm I know. still stuck there for a minute. I know. Why is that? Well, one is that they're living longer. And so now they're saying that people have a 50% chance of living past 100. And that if you are in Japan, it's something like half of the people have a chance of living past. It's either 102 or 105. So life expectancy, the people that are 70 right now that got to retire when they were 61, um, the, the age range is about 85 to 90 is, is their average life expectancy. You get to those 10-year-olds year and it's 102 plus. And so that's, that's an extra you know, 20 years of living, which means that's an extra 20 years of working. And so you end up with 60 years. Now, I don't know where things are going. I think that as long as we keep recognizing that the processes and the data and how we were doing things in the past were set up for a reality that no longer exists, if we are courageous enough to say, wait a second, why do we have a 40-hour work week? Why do we? Why do we work, you know, five days a week, eight hours every day um, during those five days, two days off? Like a lot of those processes were put in place when work looked different than it will over the next 15 years. Much different. So we're saying that if everything stayed the same, that's what we would be doing is working for for 80 years. I think that there's a lot of opportunity to redesign the whole system. But right now, the part that we're starting with the redesign is the only thing that is going to be durable over an 80-year career are those innate talents. Somebody's ability to innovate, communicate, um, be work well on teams, uh, to be adaptable, understanding somebody's own personal prioritization of those talents and continually optimizing them throughout the career is going to be able to set us all up for success much better than a degree that is no longer relevant in five years or a job that has just disappeared. Right, because maybe someone's in a job, the technology changes, but they have a certain personality set that enables them to easily transform into the next job at the same company, for example. Exactly. So uh, at large enterprise companies, back to SAP, who has that those 100,000 employees, if a role becomes automated, they typically have two choices. They can either upskill somebody to do something that's different 
Um, so for example, if you have a front-end developer and you've decided that in order to be an agile employer, agile workforce, you no longer want to have just front-end developers or just back-end developers. Now you want to have full-stack developers because full-stack developers can do both so they can adapt more quickly. So if you take all your front-end and all your back-end developers and say, you no longer have a job unless you're upskilled to be a full-stack developer, well, it's very costly. You're not going to upskill all of them. And frankly, not everybody is going to learn quickly on the job and excel at being a full-stack. It's I saw an article several years ago saying, let's take all the coal miners, because we're not going to need coal miners anymore, and train them to be software developers. Yeah, 5% of them probably would make excellent software developers, but you really don't want to train all of them. Right, because they, yeah. they probably don't want to, A. So in that case, the other option that... To, if you're not upskilling, is to show people the door. And that's very costly. If you've got an employee that's been working with you for several years, they have loyalty to the organization, they really understand what you're trying to accomplish, to have to get rid of them and then try to recruit somebody and compete for talent to bring somebody new in, that's a horrible outcome too. So the alternative is to take that front-end developer, let's call her Emily, let's assume she's been on the job for 10 years, her coding language is starting to be outdated, and her employer now only wants full-stack developers. Plum can offer a new option by saying, hey, you know, Emily actually is a 95 match for a technical sales rep role because she's very high in persuasion. There is no past pattern recognition of where somebody went to school and previously worked that would be able to make that outcome. But when you look at somebody's cognitive ability and personality priorities, that psychometric data, right. you can see she'd be a 95 for technical sales. She'd be an 85 for product and innovation because she's got very high levels of innovation and she'd be a 75 for operations because she's really strong in execution. And now you don't have to have this max exodus of people leave your organization and to compete for new talent or to spend all this money trying to re-upskill hard skills that may be outdated again in a few years. Exactly. We can now repurpose talent within the organization. And Emily just won from the whole thing because now she doesn't have to start over somewhere else. She gets to stay with her colleagues and she gets a brand new growth opportunity that's going to keep her motivated because she's constantly excelling and, and, and learning while she's in her job. Caitlin, this is so fascinating. We're going to take a really short break and we'll be right back with our discussion on the future of work. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on 106.5 LMNFM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm Kathy Sabokin filling in for David Moses. And my guest is Caitlin McGregor, co-founder and chief executive officer of Plum Startup in Waterloo that's developed predictive hiring technology. And we are talking about the future of work. What about diversity in the workplace? Where is that? Where are we going with that? Yeah, so I was touching on it a little bit earlier in terms of on the employer side when they're looking at past experience or automating that that evaluation just with AI that's looking at resume data and social media data. There there's a lot of them trying to de-risk the situation. Well, if if this has been the traditional career path for somebody in the past, let's just keep doing that. And they're doing that because they they don't know a different way. They don't they don't know. They're looking for the safest route. So sometimes what has always been done is is the safest thing to keep doing. And so there's a lot of bias that happens by looking at poor quality data on the employer side. But what's interesting is diversity also there is a role that the individual is playing. Um, there's a stat that said that. You know, if a man is looking at a job post, he often feels that if he meets three out of 10 of the requirements, he'll apply for the job. 
Whereas a woman will often feel that she needs to meet 10 out of 10 of the requirements to apply, which means that there's a self-selection bias that's happening on the individual that is limiting. It's not for everybody, obviously, but overwhelmingly our own perception of our worth and what we feel like we're eligible for or even what level of risk we're comfortable doing. Uh, it's really interesting. We just hired this week uh, a new industrial, uh, an additional industrial organizational psychologist into our organization. Uh, she hadn't worked for a tech startup before, and she's actually part of our product team. And so for somebody with an industrial organizational psychology background who's always worked in HR, the idea of then becoming a product manager, that's that seems risky. It and does. So sure. In the interview, she we were talking about you know, making the move from an enterprise stable job to a startup in a totally new department in a way she never thought about. And she used the word risk. Well, you know, I really love Plum. I really like what you're doing. You know, there's this rare opportunities to use IO psychology this way, but, you know, it's a bit risky. And I was able to look at her Plum profile, her psychometric data. I was able to understand how her strengths match the needs of this role. And she was a 97 match because we were looking for somebody that was really innovative. We were looking for somebody that was really good at adapting. We were looking for somebody who was really good at executing. And she had all of 97 match. She had them in spades. And so what I was able to do in the conversation with her is show her own profile and say, you may think this is risky because it doesn't fit the past pattern recognition that the industry has shown you. But I don't see this as risky at all. You're in the top 3% of the entire workforce for being a fit for this role. You are going to be able to use your expertise in an innovative way that you would not elsewhere. You will be so motivated to come up with out-of-the-box ideas. And your execution means you're never going to drop the ball. You will figure it out. Whatever is thrown at you, you will work hard to figure it out. Now, there's one area over here that, you know, this type of communicating using product language and things like that may be new to you, and it may take a little bit of time to kind of Get up with the lingo for sure, yeah. But we know that right out of the gate. So your director of product, knowing that, will be able to in your first ninety days support you and really make sure that when you have time for coaching and development, that it's around getting additional support for that area because we know that's relevant for your job and it's gonna. That's where the learning curve is. But overall, there isn't a risk. And so what's really fascinating is that when we talk about the changing nature of work, both the organization, the company is hesitant to take that front-end developer, Emily, and make her a technical sales rep. But Emily probably would be hesitant to move into technical sales rep. I I literally had that use case uh, four years ago when BlackBerry laid off so many of their workers. Um, It was in the first kind of rolling of, of mass layoffs. And we did a workshop with a bunch of the people that had been laid off and allowed them to take their plum profile and sat with them to talk about their strengths. And there was one gentleman who was a developer and he had been looking for a job for eight months, could not find anybody to hire him. The language he had been using at BlackBerry was not translating technically to other roles. But I saw he had very high levels of persuasion and and communication. And I said, I think, you know, you will love talking to people. It's part of who you are. Have you thought about technical sales? I think you'd be amazing at it based on this. And he's like, oh, sales, gross. You know, and I said, "Okay." 
go and do an informational interview. And he's like, what's that? And I said, wow, I, I can't believe you don't know about informational interviews. This is a side tangent. It's just going and talking to it's someone basically, not saying, I'm not here for a job. Yeah, I'm just here to find out about exactly. this job. Exactly. It's, it's just saying, hey, I, I noticed we have similar backgrounds, but you're in a totally different job. I'm, I'm exploring whether or not that's a good good career progression for me or to learn how you ended up making that change in your career. And what happened is he knew a few people in his network. He took them out for coffee. He asked them about what does their job look like day to day. And he came back and he said, I love what they told me that I would be doing every day if I was doing their job. I think I would be so happy. So he started applying for the first time to technical sales roles. And within two months, he was hired and he's been at that company for four years since and more fulfilled than ever. And so Part of understanding the future of work is, yes, the enterprise, the, the companies need to change, but we as individuals need to understand that we are limiting ourselves by not thinking bigger. Don't let the requirements of a job make you feel like, oh, I'm not eligible. Really advocate for the, that, those transferable skills and find non-traditional ways of getting in front of those people. And one of those ways is informational interview. Find out people in that organization sure. and and get them to champion you in a non-traditional way. Could it, could it be, though, that a lot of employers are still stuck in this old method of hiring and they're not willing to put in the time? So maybe somebody needs a little extra time on the technical end of something. Absolutely. Maybe they need three more weeks of training than another person would. But other than that, they're perfect for this job. I think employers are still too quick to chop people out. Absolutely, employers, they're trying to de-risk the situation. It's coming from a place where they're scared and they want to make the safest bets. And so some of the things that the individual can do is, A, don't let that deter you from at least putting your name in the hat. B, Maybe there's an opportunity to come into a great organization in a less risky way. So, for example, in the tech space, a lot of the times people will enter the tech space by starting as a customer success representative. Most people, not most, half of the people in our company were never part of the tech space. I'm not a technical co-founder. I wasn't in tech before, but I was an entrepreneur that moved into the tech space. And so what happens is a lot of the people that have come into our organization that didn't start in tech came in as a sales rep or came in as a customer success rep, but they didn't stay in that role. What they did is in the first year, they proved themselves. They showed that they were the right fit for the organization. They showed that they were amazing workers, but they didn't they didn't love the selling component or the customer support component. Um, one person is just that you know, constantly trying to make employees happy was just, uh, sorry, customers happy was just not Not, the thing that motivated her. But she was such an amazing worker and such an amazing fit that we, as we grew, were motivated to internally promote and find ways of repurposing these rock stars in in our company into ways that they felt more fulfilled, their talents were more utilized so that they would stay. It's one of the best retention tools, but it also means the individual sometimes may have to take a step back in order to take a step forward. And that concept of taking a step back to take a step forward is uh, a key part of us rethinking that 80-year career progression. A lot of the times people thought about their careers as a step, a stepping, you, you step upstairs. So you you take a step up on the stairs and then it's leveled off for a while. Then you take another step in your career and that's leveled off. And so it literally feels like you're walking up a staircase. It's going to look a little bit more like you take a step up and there's a little bit of this 
period where you go through a circle before you get to get to the next step again. I'm used to seeing this drawn, so I don't know how to do it over the radio, but it's this concept that you have to take a step back to learn new things. The first six months of every job may be actually a new learning cycle. And so it's this idea of continuous learning. If we say, hey, I want to move into this new trajectory in my career, but I'm going to have to take a pay cut. I'm going to have to take some time to train. I'm going to have to take some time to onboard and feel uncomfortable because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to go from a position of having complete confidence in what I'm doing to something where I feel like I'm a total newbie. But then in six months, I will have mastered that. Then I'll be in that role for a couple years and then I'll go through the cycle. And you're making sometimes lateral changes. It's not just a career ladder where that BDR business development representative becomes an account executive, becomes a sales leader. Some of this is that more of a lattice, moving laterally, moving sideways and horizontally and diagonally before over time, yes, you're moving up in the organization, but it's not that same, you know, walking up a staircase or climbing a ladder that that traditionally existed. And, And so part of the equation is that as the employers try to change their mentality, we as individuals need to recognize that our potential is the most valuable things, our talents make that make us different from everyone else are how we are going to succeed. So the sooner people can become self-aware and learn how to leverage their talents, the more successful they will be. How many jobs can we anticipate or, or if we're in a job, for how long will that role be relevant before technology takes over? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we're we're seeing in general right now people are changing careers about every 3 to 5 years now. Probably there's incremental change right now, whereas the difference is going to be those changes are going to be drastic. And a lot of the times people, because the people practices aren't there, a lot of the times they're they're maybe changing jobs once within the organization. So they're maybe there for six years, seven years, but people aren't staying as long as they used to. And so part of the opportunity is employers can, if they keep providing growth opportunities and internal mobility, they can retain people much longer. I think there has to be a lot more education for employers is what I'm hearing, because this is very progressive, but not everyone's there. Yes, I think it can start with how we how individuals position themselves, not start part of the equation. So one of the things that we do is um, hopefully at this point, people are like, well, I want to know what my talents are. I want to know what makes me unique. So for free, there's no cost. You can go to our website, plum.io. Uh, so plum.io, and take your own Plum profile. It takes about 25 minutes. And when you're done, you immediately find out your top talents. So my top talents are persuasion, innovation, and decision making. And from that, I would have questions that I could ask an employer or my existing employer, questions about the job to make sure that I will be fulfilled and happy It gives me insights in terms of the environments and the types of things that will make me the happiest in the role. And I can use that exact language to promote myself with others. To I can promote those talents as like a third-party verification type of extra credibility on my LinkedIn, on my resume. And then there's some development opportunities. So for me, it would talk about ways that I could be even stronger in innovation or even stronger in uh, decision making so that I stand out even more as being exceptional in those. But then there's also a development opportunity of something that's lower. So teamwork, you know, sometimes when somebody's like, hey, we're all going to eat lunch together today. Not and I'm everyone like, wants to. And I'm like, I've got a really long list of things I got to get done. I'm sorry. Like, I, I just don't prioritize it. It's a reminder that that that's important to spend time with people builds trust. And it's reminders of how to make sure that that doesn't 
get deprioritized too much. Is that not part of diversity now? There's so many things going on here that I want to touch upon, but diversity, you've talked about someone, maybe they're too busy. Maybe someone's more introverted. They're not comfortable in team situations all the time. Doesn't mean they're they're not a good fit for the culture. They're just more introverted. Is that part of diversity as well? Yes. It's not just about what culture we came from. It's, are you more introverted? So it's are really you- about making sure, it's, it's changing the way we think about work to being, um, when it's talent-based, it's about strengths-based. It's about how do we leverage things that people are naturally great at instead of you know, if somebody has a hard time going out and networking and speaking with people and it's really draining for them, then they're not going to enjoy or excel in a role that requires those type of behaviors every single day. So how do we maximize each person to their strength so that the organization is constantly getting top performers? What it means is you need to understand what strengths are needed for every particular role. That's the the thing that's been missing right now is that we've been relying on job descriptions instead of doing what best practices say, which is you need to really do a job analysis. You need to define instead of those KPIs, K, uh, it's the, the KBIs, the key behavioral indicators. What are those key behavioral indicators for each unique job that is so important and matching to those. But that means then people can exist that have different variety of strengths, that you get diversity and that you can accommodate for all the different, you know, ways that people excel. If that means that you have some more remote workers, if you have people that are, they're better workers because they're working with other people. So they're in jobs or collaborations, really important that you're not accidentally realizing that because you are an innovative company that you haven't all of a sudden eliminated people of certain ages that could have tons of value and perspectives and adaptability. We, in order to try to de-risk things, put in really false requirements. And culture sometimes is one of those that say, oh, we need them to fit the culture. And and it's if it's relevant to the job, then it comes out in those key behavioral indicators. But if it's just a blanket statement of we only want innovative people, then what happens is you miss that specificity for the job. You end up creating this groupthink. You miss out of uh, out of opportunities to have that diverse perspective, and you can end up with innovative accountants. And and you don't want innovative accountants. That's where you end up with troubles. It's not job relevant. So we overuse culture sometimes as an excuse of de-risking. And where it's important, it comes out in those KBIs. Caitlin McGregor is a co-founder and chief executor of Plum, startup in Waterloo to develop predictive hiring technology. We'll be right back on the future of work. I'm Kathy Sabokin. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses. My guest today, Caitlin McGregor, co-founder, chief executive officer of Plum, a company that's developed predictive hiring technology, and we're talking about the future of work. Now, I heard you you were involved with the University of Waterloo's co-op program, and that the, they are now using Plum to match students every year with positions at employers across North America. Tell us about that. Yeah, we were really fortunate to tap into a government program called Building Canada Innovation Program, which is encouraging government departments, and that extends to universities as well, to buy and use Canadian innovation. And so that allowed us to do a a two-year contract that would give UW full access to use Plum for all of their co-op students and any employer that hires them where 
the employer and the students don't have to pay for anything. It's covered by by the government. So right now, uh, I think we're up to something like 70 employers are using Plum as part of their campus recruitment process. That's led to a lot of larger deals with enterprise companies as well. And then we've got um, a lot of the students as they come into the co-op program, they are now taking uh, the Plum profile assessment. So it's a 25-minute assessment. It's the one you can do right off of our website. And in their cases, we're now giving them access to, beyond just that free profile, a full professional development guide. So the students are having that extra data to understand their full 10 talents, what are their strengths, what are their areas for development and opportunity, and giving them that self-awareness so that they can really promote themselves based on their potential and advocate for different opportunities than than necessarily the the traditional one tr- traditional career path that they always saw uh, and, and then it's the, really self-empowering it too, really to go, hey is. these are my strengths yeah this is what I'm going to go in with it's self-empowering it, it's yeah my my cousin's graduating um the in September and he's a developer and you know he's feeling like well he doesn't have a lot of on-the-job experience yet so you know, who's going to take a risk on him? And I had to kind of coach him to say, you know, look, Alex, you know how to talk to people. A big, big part of software development is the customer journey, understanding the customer needs and and what's the journey? What are they trying to get value out of the product? You can actually talk to the end customer. You can figure out their needs so that you're not just building something that you think works. You're building something that actually addresses the customer pain point. Your ability to be a developer and communicate as well as you do with people, communicate and work well on teams, you don't understand that is really unique at your stage. Your communication ability is such a value. So when you go out, stop saying you don't have any job experience and you're competing with all these other newbies that don't, new graduates that don't have job experience. Start saying, hey, you uniquely will be an amazing asset to create teamwork on on the existing team and to help strengthen the communication with customers. And boom, now you stand out amongst a pool of a, a hundred people. So it's about enabling uh, UW students to, to start to see themselves that way as well. And then when they apply, um, some employers will get hundreds and hundreds of applicants in the co-op program, and they have no way of looking at the people that have the greatest potential for success. So with the Plum Match Score, they're able to focus on, okay, these candidates all have the high quality of communication or managing others or innovation that we're looking for. So it helps them shortlist. And then when they go in for the interviews, we have structured interview guide questions. So they're specifically, if execution is important for the role, are they using best practices, structured interview questions to actually find out if the person, um, how does that re- how does that reflect in their day-to-day use? Um, and so it's just really allowing UW employers to have this data so they make better decisions and empowering the students so that they can really drive their own professional development and career opportunities in a way that is more in line with with how the changing nature of work is is really materializing. I think that's just so important for them. So I teach, as mentioned, in the university. So there's a lot of lacking of confidence at that stage. So that's great. It's self-empowering. It's, it makes sense. And is this part of the three-step process that you're... Yeah, you, so... 
that we've you kind mentioned? of been uh, dancing around it a little bit. I'll just kind of go geeking out a little bit on the product here. So the first step is that every single individual takes this one time plum assessment. So it doesn't matter if you're a job seeker. It doesn't matter if you're an employee and you can take it right off our website if you want to try it yourself. But what happens in this 25 minute assessment is that they're tested that they, they take a test that um, evaluates two different types of cognitive ability. The first one is something called fluid intelligence. It has nothing to do with what you've learned in the past. It has everything to do with how well you handle brand new uh, problems. And so old assessments would look at things like your math ability and your vocabulary ability. And those were flawed because people that just graduated were more likely to be able to get the math problems. And if you had new multiple languages, then your vocabulary of in course. one language would be lower, but was not reflective of the fact that you actually had a larger vocabulary. So we we use something that's matching visual puzzles, which doesn't discriminate against certain socioeconomic groups. And it focuses on that critical part, which is how well do you handle new situations, not just repeating rote memory. So then the second part. And, and right in that, you just think of students from other countries, exactly. for example. How well do they adapt? Wow. Yeah. So Extremely then the, well. Yeah, exactly. But if it's just based on how they spelled. Yeah. they're going from one language to another. Yeah, yeah. It would it would be problematic. So we the second part is personality. So we get people to go through a bunch of um, forced choice statements. So there's no right answer. It's just about prioritizing your time. So this is an example of one of the questions. Uh, which one? And maybe maybe you can answer it for your case and and share with people. Right. And I'll and I'll tell you which one when when's my priority. So the first question the between these three statements, you need to pick one that is most like you. And one that is least like you or okay. most important to you and least important to you. So I generally res- respect authority. I make friends easily or I usually finish what I start. Which one's most important and least important? And then you leave one blank. In the workplace? Yes. Or just in- no, in the workplace. Um, the first one. So I, so there's I generally respect authority. I make friends easily and I usually finish what I start. Oh, okay. So I would say the third one is I finish what I start. Okay. I get the job done. Okay. And what's the thing that's the least important to you? The least important in the workplace? That's a tough one because I would have to see them now. I'm overthinking it, right? No, no. You because could. I do have to respect authority because there is a certain mandate mm-hmm. under which I have to work. Um, there's a certain... Yeah, mandate under which following I, the so rules. I would say like I have to follow the rules. It, so making friends easily would be like the least important to you out of right. those three. It's important, but I would put it as the least. Okay. So my my most important is also I usually finish what I start, but my least is I generally res- I generally respect authority. I, I don't generally respect authority. I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> I make up my own rules. Own so rules, right. so um, that that's reflective in, in my prioritization. So by going through that, we actually ask all negative statements as well. It's really hard to prioritize, you know, negative things as well, but it, it really does drive at people's priorities. And then the last step is social intelligence. So it's a work situation. There's some sort of conflict. You have to say which one's the most effective way to respond and the least effective way to respond. So what's the best way of getting the social reaction and and participation and cooperation and all of those things that you need. So if you're in a leadership role or a customer-facing role, having that high social intelligence is really important. But we have everybody take it so that if you're a front-end developer today, we can see that maybe you would be an excellent future Scrum Master tomorrow. So we get all that information from the individual. 
And that's step one. Step two is that it really comes down to what is needed for the role, because it doesn't matter if you're amazing in teamwork. If it's not related to the role, then, then that's not going to help someone. So it's all about taking an eight-minute survey on the employer side that narrows down those key behavioral indicators that says what the priorities at this time in, in history for this exact role in this exact region These are the behaviors that are most important. And we go through having multiple people that understand the needs of that role. They can all individually take this eight-minute survey, and we can see if there's alignment. We have one customer that says they reduced the amount of interviews by 88% just because they finally all got on the same page in terms of what the requirements for the role were. A lot of the times we're interviewing people and we think we're interviewing for job you know, requirements A, but your colleague who's interviewing them actually has a different set of ideas to mind. And then the third step is comparing the people to the job requirements. So I could be an 88 match for job A, but a 39 match for job B. And it's all about whether or not I have the strengths that are needed for that particular role. And ideally, you know, then it's about finding all of my 99s. We want to find jobs that everybody can be a match somewhere. And so this data allows you to be compared to any, any job. And what that's done for us is realized that, and I said it earlier, while we can predict hiring, some of the most interesting use cases that we're using this for are allowing employees to have that professional development that's personalized. So instead of saying, we want to be innovative and everyone's going to go out and do learning content on innovation, I can look specifically at my talent of innovation and see what areas that if I made slight improvements on could have a huge exponential impact on my ability to innovate. So now I can go into my learning content management at my company and look for specific content around my personalized areas that are related to me in my own career growth or related to how I match in the role I want I have now or the role I'm looking for in the future. So personalized professional development is kind of the results of, of this. Another one is that personalized career pathing, seeing the different opportunities and mobility in the company. And then the last one is uh, we're actually looking at who would meet a company's leadership framework? A lot of companies have a board mandate to have succession plans in place, to have a pipeline of talent, so to refill your director roles. And what happens is that a lot of the most diverse candidates don't make it to director level and above. They leave the organization before that even happens. And so some of your best, most talented, diverse people in the first three years on the job are when you need to identify them so that you can nurture them and keep them before they go somewhere else. And because you already have the psychometric data on the individual, we can then apply your leadership framework. And that's where sometimes a little bit of the culture stuff where it's more universal, it's not as much about the unique role. You can see, okay, who's the most agile? Who has the the greatest level of um, presence? Whatever you're measuring for, we have our own leadership framework, but we can customize to a company's. And so now we're able to say, hey, if you have you know, 6,500 employees, instead of only measuring the top 10% and identifying high potentials, now you can look at all your early and emerging leaders, people the first year on the job, see if there's somebody that you want to make sure makes it to those upper ranks, completely allowing you to have a more diverse uh, pipeline and having really a truly effective diversity and inclusion uh, talent practice. This is really refreshing to hear all this. Personal question, did you ever imagine you would be doing this? When you were younger, so and thought ahead. This this is really interesting. You know, our technology is about quantifying human potential, and so I think that it's obvious in hindsight that I was starting things from scratch. 
But I never thought I was an entrepreneur. Nobody said, hey, Caitlin, I think you should go to school and be an entrepreneur or that you'll be doing your own business. It, was, it wasn't until my first boss saw potential in me, said, you've never built a business before, but I'm going to make you employee number one, director of operations, go figure it out. I'll handle the sales and the finance, but you go build it from scratch. It wasn't until I proved to myself that I could build a business from scratch that gave me the courage to go and do it myself. And if I wonder where my career would be if that person didn't see that potential in me. So I want technology to take that serendipity, you know, somebody having to see potential in you and allow people to be empowered to really drive their own potential and make sure that they they're striving and maximizing their potential in their career. And in all of this, what are you most proud of? That's a that's a tough one. I'm really excited about the fact that we have a solution that can help make sure that the future of work is a positive story for everyone. And I know that if we aren't here providing a different way, we'll end up with a future of Jared's that read Harry Potter and play the cross. And I'm proud that we have an alternative to a much brighter future with the business we're building at Plum. Caitlin, you've been amazing to talk to. It's truly fascinating. And again, if someone wants to look at your website or reach out to you, where are they going to go? Plum.io. Plum.io. It's the first I.O. I've actually heard. Usually .ca or .io. I love it. Well, thank you very much. So appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me today. This is really an honor to be here. Fantastic. So my guest today has been Caitlin McGregor, co-founder, chief executive officer of Plum. Startup in Waterloo. Is this still a startup category? So no, we're kind of we're kind of we're kind of right? graduated from the startup at this point, I would say. But uh, a tech company. I'm Kathy Sabok, and I've been filling in today for David Moses, and you've been listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and you can check out our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca.